Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by being, making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, good morning. My name is James Nysong. I'm one of the pastors here, if we have not met. And I just want to say thank you for coming this morning to worship, whether this is your first time or whether this is your uh, seventh seven, eighth year that you've been with us. It is such an honor that we get to get, come together and worship Jesus together. That is such a privilege that we don't want to uh, take for granted. And uh, this morning, if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, we're, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. And as Terry has already said, we are starting a new teaching series that we have entitled At Our Core, exploring, we want to explore the foundations of Reach Life Church. And in doing so, we're going to be looking at the seven core values that we hold as a church that explain who we are and why we do what we do. And I want to just begin by saying that, you know, at Reach Life Church, we don't believe that our Reach Life Church community is meant for every believer. But we do believe that every believer is meant for a church community, that you would be plugged in somewhere within a local body so that you can use your gifts and help bless others and be blessed by the church and stay together as Christ's flock. But the thing that you may be asking is, I wonder if Reach Life Church is that church for us. Well, this is what we're planning to do, is go through seven of our core descriptors to maybe help you decide if this is the church that God is calling you to be a part of. And you know, this, mor- this morning we're going to be looking at our first core descriptor, the scripture, which is gospel-centeredness, what it means to be gospel-centeredness. And this is what our definition is of being gospel-centered, passionately united and centered around the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And uh, like I said, in, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15. And as is our custom, if you would, if you are able to stand uh, with us in honor of God's word, please stand with me as I read verses 1 through 4 in 1 Corinthians 15. And as I read, keep in mind that this is God's word that is given to his church. Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing it is to be able to come together as your people and to be reminded of the gospel, to be reminded of of the good news. And we are people who are desperately in need of hearing good news. And so we ask that by the Holy Spirit you would Give us fresh eyes and ears to hear and see the glory of Jesus uh, that is found in his glorious gospel. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. 
Well, in his best-selling book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey coined the phrase, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. That's pretty catchy, isn't it? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. In other words, if you ever hope to achieve something, if you ever hope to reach your goals in life, then you need to keep your focus and efforts on that which is of first importance, that which is essential. And you know, a great company that I think we all, because we're Christians, know of that keeps the main thing the main thing is this company, Chick-fil-A. Can I get an amen from the people? The only thing I would change about Chick-fil-A is that they would be open today, okay? But that's the only thing I would change about them. But they are a great uh, company, one of the most profitable fast food restaurants in the U.S. And as you know, Chick-fil-A has a menu. And on that menu, they have lots of different items. Um, One of my favorites is waffle fries and a shake, a chocolate shake. I love to take the waffle fries, a little salt on them, dip them in there, and just eat them. Uh, I could do that for the whole entree. They've got that. They've got uh, cookies. They've got fruit cups and other things. But there is one item on that menu that is of first importance, isn't there? That if, that if you took that item away or you tried to change it or add to it, maybe add a burger or a burrito, Chick-fil-A would no longer be Chick-fil-A. And that item is obviously chicken. And they know how to keep the main thing the main thing. And in a similar way, just as chicken is Chick-fil-A's central entree of first importance, the church, listen church, we have been given an entree as it were. The church has been given an entree that is to be of first importance, and it is known as the gospel. And if you try to add to or take away from Jesus, who is the gospel, we will cease to be the church. That is extremely important, that if you change the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are no longer a New Testament church. And if you're taking notes, I have a big idea that I want to to give you up front here, and that is that the gospel of Jesus must be of first importance if we are to be fruit-bearing disciples of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus must be of first importance. And when I say fruit-bearing disciples, what I mean by that is that if we're going to be healthy disciples who live lives that display the glory of Jesus in all of life, in all that we do, then the gospel must be of first importance in our lives. Let's look at verse 1 of our passage in chapter 15. Paul starts out, he says, Now I would remind you. What is that implying? That we are a forgetful people, aren't we? We are a forgetful people, and we need to be reminded. It is very easy for the gospel to shift, to us, for us to drift away from the gospel. And so Paul, knowing that, said, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. And then verse 3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. 
And, and the gospel must be of first importance. And it's, it's easy to forget it. And so, as a church, because it's easy to forget it, we have a mission statement. And in that, our mission statement says this, changing life by being, making, growing, and unleashing what? Gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? That's a great, you know, that's a great term. I love to say it. Every person I've ever asked who's a Christian, I say, are you gospel-centered? They're like, yeah, I believe in the gospel. But does that mean you're gospel-centered? Well, I want to be able to answer that question and two others this morning, just so you'll know where I'm going. Number one, the question I want to ask is, what does it mean to be gospel-centered? Secondly, why is being gospel-centered one of our core values at Reach Life Church? And how, lastly, how can we grow as a church and as individuals in being gospel-centered? Starting out, number one, what does it mean to be gospel-centered? Well, I think we've already established what it means to be centered on something. So I think the next thing we need to do is to define what it is when we, mean, when we say the gospel. What is the gospel? Uh, verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered as to you, as of first importance, what I also received. Now, he's about to tell us, in a nutshell what the gospel is. And here it is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, there's a lot more to the gospel than this, but this is, what, this is the gospel boiled down. And if you want to boil it down to just 10 words, Parents, listen, if you're wanting to teach your children the gospel, I'm going to give you the gospel that you can give them on your fingers. Ten words, and that is Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Those are ten words. That is, in a nutshell, what the gospel is. If you change any of those, those, uh, those ten words, it is no longer the gospel. And there's a lot of things that, that we could say about the gospel. We, and we try to do it weekly. We try to uh, bring the gospel or show how everything connects to the gospel. But I'm going to bring up, I want to show you two things in the gospel that we need to understand. And the first one is this, is that the gospel is, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The gospel is good news, not good advice. The gospel is good news, not good advice. And, you know... I wish I could say that I, I made that up, but I got it from this guy uh, who, who died recently whose name was Tim Keller. And he just knows how to say things in a clear way. Let me read the quote that he, where this comes from. It's, he said, The gospel is news, not advice. Advice is counsel that you get to get something accomplished. News is a report that something's been accomplished for you, and you must respond to it. Now, you know, all world religions give advice. They give advice that actually burdens the worshiper with things that they must do in order to be right with God and to stay right with God. You know, actually, Christians can be like that too. People that are truly in Christ, we can burden one another with things that the scripture is not calling us to do if we don't stay gospel-centered. But the gospel is not good advice. It is 
good news. And being gospel-centered, instead of putting the burden on us, it removes the burden off our backs. Because it, uh, the, the gospel causes us to take our eyes off of ourselves and off of our sin and what we need to do and to look to Jesus and to see what he has done, how he took our place. And that Jesus has already done everything that needs to be done in order for us to be right with God. Jesus has already accomplished what needed to be done. And so the gospel is good news and not good advice. The second thing I want to point out here is that it is a message. The gospel is a message that must be heard, it must be understood, and it must be responded to. Now, people will not come up with this unless they're told that Christ died for their sins and rose from the dead. You, you won't find that knowledge just in nature. Someone has to tell you that revelation, or you need to read it through the Scriptures, that Christ died for our sins. So you need to hear it, but it's not enough just to hear the news. You need to understand what it means or why it's important that Christ died for you. If you tell someone, listen, if you go out on the streets and you tell the, an ordinary, just run of the, I don't know if run of the mill, I don't know if that's a person, type of person, but if you go out on the streets and talk to someone and tell them, uh, hey, you know what? Christ died for you. Most likely, they're not going to be jumping up and down and going, yay, I, I needed to hear that with joy and, and celebration. Most likely, they're going to respond with indifference in this culture today. Uh, they're probably going to say something like, cool, but I'm, but, but I'm okay. Um, I, I don't need someone to die for me because I'm basically a good person at my core. I mean, I do some bad things, but basically I'm a good person. And, you know, if, if that's their response, it might be because, uh, not just because they're indifferent, but it might be because they don't understand, church, what we understand what God has revealed to us. I mean, we understand, church, those of us who are in Christ, we understand that we're not okay, and we understand that they're not okay outside of Christ. Uh, we understand that our sin, that our rebellion against God is great. We understand that it has separated us from him, and that it also has eternal consequences. Church, we understand that. If you're in Christ, at some point you came to a place where you understood that you were a sinner separated from God that needed salvation. And you also understood that the wages of sin is death. That's what Romans 6.23 says, that our sin has created a debt between us and God. And that requires that we, uh, to pay it, you have to die. You have to perish be put to death. And you know, at, at our core, I think that all humanity at our core, whether uh, we know it at the front of our minds, and, and whether it's in our consciousness or in our subconsciousness, we know that something's not right between us and God. Um, that's why, what other religions are trying to fix. That's why they give advice on how to pay off the debt that you owe to God. Pay off the debt that your conscience is telling you that's bearing witness that you owe to God. 
And that's why the gospel, people need to understand that the gospel is such good news that that debt has already been paid. That's the message we're bringing people. Not do better so God can love you. Understand that God loves you and he died for you. He paid off our debt of sin when he put his son on the cross and put him to death for our sins. That's the message that we need to hear. That's the message we need to understand, but that's not enough. It's not enough just to understand it. Just as Tim Keller said in the quote, you have to respond to it. There's a lot of people that know that Jesus died for their sins, but that's not enough. They haven't really responded to Christ. They haven't given themselves to Christ. And to illustrate what I mean by this, I I want you to imagine that you're in a plane and you're flying across the country. And suddenly, uh, the pilot comes on the intercom. Ladies and gentlemen, I just want to let you know that the turbulence that you've been feeling um, is because the two engines on the wings have gone out. They haven't just gone out, but they're not working, and they have totally failed, and that means that we're going to be taking, making a crash landing into the side of the mountain. And everyone uh, in the plane who stays in the plane is going to die. Thank you for flying with United. Have a good day. Now, what would you do if that happened? See, this is why Colton doesn't ever want to get in the plane, because he thinks that this is going to happen to him. Okay, he's, I shouldn't have shared that publicly, but I did. <laughs> what would you do? That's worse than bad news, isn't it? That's terror. But then what if he said, but... I have some good news. This plane is equipped with parachutes for every, each and every passenger, and they are guaranteed 100% if you will put it on, and if you will go to the door and jump out of the plane before it crashes, it is guaranteed to bring you to the ground safely. But you have to abandon, you have to put on the parachute, and you have to abandon the plane. Okay, There are people that would not hear that message probably on the plane. Maybe they're asleep. Then there's people that would hear that message, and they would say, you know what, that cannot be true. It is impossible for both engines on a plane to go out at the same time. Then there's others who would believe the message, but they wouldn't respond to it. They would try to find another way to save themselves, maybe jump out and hope for the best. But then there's another group who would hear the message, they would understand it, and they would respond to it by putting on the the parachute and then in faith, jumping out of the plane. That's what it looks like to trust in the Lord. It's not enough just to hear that we are sinners. It's not just enough to understand it. We have to respond to the love of Christ and what he did for us by abandoning our plane. That is, our attempts to somehow fix ourselves and make ourselves better before the Lord by doing good works. Abandoning that and putting on the gospel parachute and jumping out of the plane, trusting that Jesus is going to bring us into eternity safely. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is reminding us of the gospel, that we must trust in the death of burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It must be of first importance. Now, why 
Second question I want to ask us this morning is, why is being gospel-centered a core value of our church? Well, I've got, there's a lot of, re- I mean, there's a ton of reasons that I could give, but I'm going to give just three this morning. And the first one is, is that being gospel-centered is biblical. Being gospel-centered is biblical. And by that, I mean that the central message of the Bible We need to understand, and we preach this all the time, so if you've been here for years, this isn't new. This shouldn't be new to you. But the central message of the Bible is centered on Jesus and his finished work on the cross. That's the central message from Genesis to Revelation. And uh, Jesus says this himself. If If you remember in Luke when Jesus was raised from the dead, he's walking on the road with two disciples to Emmaus. And these disciples heard that he was raised from the dead, but they don't believe it. They don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And this is what Jesus said to them in verse 25 of of Luke chapter 24. He said, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, what's he talking about there? He's talking about the Old Testament here. Jesus is talking about the, the Old Testament. He's telling his disciples, you don't believe what the prophets spoke in the Old Testament. And here's what they spoke, verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? So what, it's talking about the cross here. That Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And then in verse 27, and beginning with Moses, that's the beginning of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The scriptures are about Christ. They point to Christ and about what he was to do. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible tells one cohesive story of redemption, and it's, it's comprised of many true stories that come together to, you know, like the, the ring and the Lord of the Rings, it, it comes together to make up one story to rule them all. And that is an amazing story that Jesus loved his church. He loved his bride so much that he was willing to go after us. And not just go after us, but to bring us back to himself and pay for the debt that we owed. with Not with money, gold or silver, but with his precious blood. That is the wonderful story of the gospel. And you know, the Bible is gospel-centered. It's, it's centered on the message of Christ, but it's not just for this life. It's, this, is, this blew my mind years ago when I realized, you know what? Gospel-centeredness, looking at what Christ did for us on the cross, it's not just for this life, it's for the life to come. And I know that because in Revelation 5, it teaches that heaven is gospel-centered. I want us to look at Revelation 5 Verse 9, this is in heaven. It says, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal. This is speaking about Jesus. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then in verse 11 it says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creature's And the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. This is talking about the cross. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. In other words, listen, for all eternity, we are going to be praising Jesus for what he did for us on the cross. Every time we see his nail-scarred hands his, and his feet and maybe his side, what are we going to do? It's going to remind us of what he did for us. It's going to remind us of how much he loves us. And we are going to praise him for all eternity and thanking him for what he did to enable us to be made right with God. We want to be gospel-centered as a church because, listen, the Bible is gospel-centered. Secondly, we want to be gospel-centered because it kills pride. Being gospel-centered kills pride. And I'm going to define pride as being uh, any time that you don't believe what God says about you. Anytime you don't believe what God says about you, when you don't trust him. And, you know, when we think of being proud, usually we think about that guy or that girl who's arrogant or puffed up and, you know, they think that they're better than everybody else. And that, there is that type of pride. And the reason that people think too much of themselves, uh, too highly of themselves, is because, you know why? It's because they're not aware of the holiness of God. They're comparing themselves with someone else on this plane. But when you compare yourself to God, you see yourself as you really are. And so the gospel kills this form of pride. Because, listen, when you look upon the, the, the man hanging upon the cross, Jesus, and you see his lacerated, battered, bleeding body pinned into the wood by jagged, rusty nails. You know, Isaiah 52, 14, it says that, that when Jesus was on the cross, his figure, his appearance was disfigured beyond that of a human being. And his form was marred beyond human likeness. It, it sounds like Jesus didn't even look human because of the beating that he took, the punishment that he took, because of the wrath that he took from, in, in our place. And when you look and behold the man upon the cross and you believe what God says about you, that that's what I deserved. That's what you deserved. We, we sing the, the hymn, It was my sin. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. That's what we deserve. And when we believe God, man, that's what I should have gotten. It brings us all down onto the same level playing field it takes away my pride I'm no better than you I mean you're no better than me we all put the Savior up there and when I realize that that God has forgiven me of putting his son to death what, what greater sin is there but when I realize that there's nothing that you can do to me that is greater than what I have done to Christ and God has forgiven me. 
Therefore, I can forgive you. That's how the gospel works when I get when Christ has done for me. Now, there's, there's another pride. It's kind of like on the other uh, spectrum. And that's the pride of self-pity. Uh, and it can be in the forms of self-loathing. And, and that's when um, you're being so aware, you're so aware of God's holiness. And, and it makes you so well aware of your personal sinfulness that it keeps you from seeing what Christ has done for you. From rejoicing in Christ. From rejoicing in his love and his forgiveness. Instead of glorying in his grace and his mercy, you wallow in your personal failures and unworthiness. We've, we've probably all been there. But if you're there this morning, I want to I just encourage you, you don't need to be there. I know a lady that, uh, at the end of this service, we plan to, to take the Lord's Supper. And I know a lady that, I've known her for 20 years, sweetest lady, she's a believer. Uh, she, uh, she doesn't go to our church, but uh, one time I was talking to her before uh, communion, and she said, you know, James, I just, I can't take communion. And I was like, why? She's like, I'm just not worthy. I said, that makes you worthy. Do you realize that makes you worthy? When you realize you're not worthy? That you realize that you need a Savior? It's not about, again, it's not about what we've done. It's about receiving what he has done. And you know, for sure, the cross teaches us that, that we're unworthy. It teaches us what we deserve. We deserve what Christ got. But it also teaches us that Jesus willfully laid his life down for us because he sees us as precious. He sees us as valuable. We are that to God. And you know, we need to understand and realize that God would rather give us forgiveness than punishment. Scripture says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that all would come and hear and understand and respond to what Jesus has done for them. And Jesus himself, he says, I have come not to bring judgment, but to save you from it. I have come that you would have life and have it abundantly, that you would live a life of joy and worship. But you know what? I want to stay, I want to just point out something, that if you willfully remain in a state of kind of like self-pity and no, I just can't, I can't forgive myself. I can't accept what Christ has done. Let me say that that's not humility. That's pride. That is not humility. It's actually an insult to God. Because what you're doing is you're making more of your sin than what Christ did for you. And you're saying, you know what? It wasn't enough. So I'm going to try to you know, humble myself. But that's not true humility. I want to encourage you, if that's who you are, where you are today, that you would turn and realize that Christ wants you to rejoice. He wants you to take your sin and put it upon the cross and never look at it again. Go and sin no more. So when we believe the gospel, on one hand it reminds us of what we deserve, the wrath of God. But it also teaches us of what we're getting when we put our faith in him. Forgiveness, mercy, eternal life, and our fellowship and relationship with God.
And when we get that, when we get the gospel, it kills pride. And our lives will be characterized by humble worship of Jesus. The third and final thing I want to point out about why we want to be centered on the gospel is that being gospel-centered produces eternal fruit. Eternal fruit. It produces it. And it's easy to think, and this is what I thought for years, I thought, you know, the gospel is this great message for, for those who are lost, for those who have not come to Christ. I would pray prayers like this when I came to church. Uh, Lord, we, we want to thank you for loving us. And if there's anyone here that needs you, I want to pray that you would open their eyes to that. Not thinking, I mean, I need you this morning, right? If there's anyone that needs to hear the gospel, you would help them to hear the gospel. Well, James, you need to hear the gospel. You need to be reminded of the gospel. You're a forgetful person, James. You need to hear the gospel. And sometimes we think that the gospel is kind of like the entry in, the ticket into, into the building, and then you move on to bigger and deeper truths. But that's not the truth. I, I love the way J.I. Packer, who is uh, no longer with us, he, he wrote and said this, We never move on from the gospel. We move on in the gospel. It is a message that is meant to be the centerpiece of the church. And it's that which empowers us to live the Christian life. You know why? It's because Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the good news. And he, he teaches us that we need to stay centered, focused on what he did for us on the cross. Now, there is a passage that I have quoted several times in the past few weeks and I'm going to quote it again. It's John 15. We've talked about abiding, beholding, and uh, trusting ourselves to Christ in order to bear fruit. And sometimes it can be like, James, why do you keep talking about that? Because I think that this is what our church needs to hear right now. Do we want to bear fruit? Yes, we do. Are we abiding in Christ? Jesus says that's the way to, for it to happen. Let's look at, look at John 15, 5. I want to... I know this is familiar to many of us, but I want to hear us to hear it with fresh, fresh ears. Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. How many times do you think you're the vine? i got to make it happen. It's all up to me. Jesus says, no, you're not the vine. You're the branch. Whoever abides in me and I in him, look at this. He it is that bears much fruit. You may have a scripture that says, they will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. We want to be fruitful people, right? Disciples of Jesus. And to do that, we have to abide in him. But we need to know what, what does that mean to abide in Jesus? You know, I, I had that question years ago, and so I, I like went through the scriptures. What does Jesus say abiding in him means? Because I got all these different definitions from people. And if you look at John chapter 6, same book, verse 55, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. What is he talking about there? He's talking about the cross. He's talking about how his body is going to be broken and how he's going he's to bleed 
And he says, my flesh is true food and my body, my blood is true drink. Look at verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, here it is, abides in me. And I am him. In other words, if we are going to abide in Jesus, we need to regularly look at what Christ has done to such a way that it affects our minds and our hearts and our affections. He says, if you will do that regularly, then you will bear fruit. You won't produce it. You will bear it. It will come out of you. The things that There's so many commandments that God has given us, that Jesus has given us. And those commandments, when we abide in him, we want to do them. They become joys. It becomes joyful to share about Jesus. When you're full of Jesus, uh, we're going to want to share Christ with our neighbor. We're going to want to love our family members. We're going to want to be together when we're abiding in him and when we're full of him. And that's why I said that the big idea, I started with the big idea that the the gospel of Jesus must be of first importance if we are to be fruit-bearing disciples. Now, in closing, how can we grow in being gospel-centered? How can we grow in what we've just heard? Because I think all of us are going, yes, man, I want to grow in 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 abiding in Christ. I want to grow in uh, seeing what Jesus has done for us and who he is. Well, it's very simple, but it's not easy. It's very simple. And that is that we need to tarry at the foot of the cross of Jesus. We need to linger at the foot of, of the cross of Jesus. We need to keep what Jesus has done for us on the cross at our, in our forefront, at our forefront of our minds and in our hearts. John Stott, he explains it this way, explained it this way. He said, the cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. But we have to get near enough for its sparks to fall on us. We have to get near the cross. So how do we do that? Well, I want to give you a a few resources that can help us do that. And the first and primary resource that we need to have is the Bible. We need to have the Word of God. Um, And as you're reading the Word of God, I want to encourage you to read it with a gospel-centered eye. Especially when, well, in the Old Testament, seeing where Jesus is and how it points us to the cross. You know, like Noah's Ark, for example. Noah's Ark is a great picture of Jesus, how all who went into the Ark were saved. Those who refused to go in perished. The ark represents the cross of Jesus. Uh, How we look at the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb that was instituted in Egypt before they came out. The blood on the doorpost. There's so many uh, pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. But also when you're in the New Testament, I want to encourage you. When you see a commandment that Paul gives, Peter gives, or John, a lot of times, most of the time, somewhere around that commandment, you're going to find the gospel. Usually what the writers of the New Testament will do is they will say, because Christ has done this, do this. Do unto others what Christ has done 
for you. So number one, the first resource is your Bible. We need to be students of the Bible, students of the Word. Ask the Holy Spirit to saturate us with the Word of God so that we can see Jesus and who He is and what He's done for us. Parents, if you have children, young children, I want to give you two resources, two books that, that I think are uh, very, that, that will help you to teach your children the story of the Bible. The first is, is The Biggest Story by Kevin DeYoung, and the second is Grandpa's Box by Star Mead. Um, the first one is for, for younger children, and the, the second one is for children that can understand you when you're reading um, a narrative. But both of these books, they were written to help children to see how the stories of the Bible are connected to scriptures, uh, the, uh, to scriptures overarching arching message about God's glorious plan to redeem his rebellious people through Jesus. So those are two resources that I can recommend that you can read to your children. And for uh, adults here, i got three resources. The first is a, a gospel primer by Milton Vincent. This is a, uh, the one on the right there. This one is uh, a book that can help you learn how to preach the gospel to yourself. One of the things that we need to do is instead of listening to ourselves and the negative things that we hear, I don't know if you've ever paid attention to yourself, but there's a lot of negative thoughts that go into your head, and they're not from God. We need to learn to preach to ourselves the gospel. That book is a great guide to help you do that. Uh, and then uh, the one on the far left by John Piper, and that's Seeing um, and Savoring Jesus Christ. This is a great book for devotionals uh, to help you to think of Christ and the cross more deeply. And then the, the one in the middle, the green one, is, is The Gospel-Centered Life by Robert Thune. Now, this is a book that our church has used uh, to take leadership through, and this is a book that we highly rec recommend because it's very, it's very simple, it's very uh, easy to understand, and it helps us to apply the gospel in every area of our lives. And one of the things that we want to see is we want to see our church members taking these, this, that book in the middle and getting together with someone else and going through it. I would love to go through it with you. Uh, if you'd like to go through it, gentlemen, I would love to uh, do that. Terry would do that. There's other leaders in the church that would love to get together and let's go through that book together or get a group together that we can go through it together. It is, it is um, if you want that book and you, you will use it, Come talk to me. We will make sure you get a copy of that. That's a, that's a book that we, we highly recommend. Uh, but the, the thing that, that I just want to just leave us with in this message is that the importance of the gospel. I hope that we see why being in the gospel is of first importance. We don't want to drift from that. Because if we do that, if we drift away from the gospel, we will lose the power and the ability to serve Christ and honor him in the way that he created us in himself uh, to do.